Welcome to uh, Stretchy Pants Sunday here at Eastlake. We're so glad that you are here. And I uh, hope you had a great uh, Thanksgiving time, family time. And if at any point during the service you just need to shift a little bit, just to shift that weight around a little bit, we get it. There's a special move you can do to be able to make that happen. But uh, it's, uh, it's good to have you here. And if you're visiting from out of town and, and your, your family talked up their church over Thanksgiving dinner and talked somehow you into being here this morning, we're glad that you're here. You are coming in at the end of a series called Louder Than Words. It's been a series on character. This is part four of a series. So it really is kind of like a conversation that builds upon itself. Um, uh, I will try and do my best to, to uh, not uh, talk through some stuff that, that we've already discussed um, and, and try and explain it. But if at any point some of it doesn't make any sense or, or it's just so good, um, that's me talking myself up. Uh, there is a website you can go to, eastlaketricities.com slash talks. If you go there, parts one, two, and three of this series uh, will be there. But it's been a series talking about character, and um, we, we said that uh, character is important because um, a lot of times when biblical imperatives, uh, when, when you hear about biblical imperatives, and if you don't have a biblical understanding, what happens is you live into short-term obedience that results in long-term frustration. Uh, and, and so what, what happens is we, 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 find, we come up against things that, like you, uh, you show up at a church service like this and somebody goes, well, we should probably do this and let's learn from this and walk away from this. And you're like, okay, I'm going to try, I'm going to try, I'm going to try, I'm going to try. And we don't have the foundation of character to have a biblical understanding of some of these things. And it leads to short-term obedience. I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to do this. Long-term frustration because it just never works out like that. Because the, the point of all of this was never try harder, try harder, try harder. That's, that's missing it really. And what we said was, Listen, throughout history, we have tried to discern what is right. Um, we, we, we live with an obligation. Every, every human being is kind of endowed with kind of an inner conscience or a, I know that this is right and I know that that's wrong. I may not always follow through on what I think is right, but I, I have an inner compass to some degree. And, and I, know, I know that what I do oftentimes doesn't match up with that, but um, we, we have, like, you go back throughout history, there, at some point, people have written down, okay, this is what is morally right for our society, to live in a civil government, to live in this way, to live um, uh, with, with liberty and freedom, but that doesn't infringe on other people's freedom, and so this is, what it, this is how it plays out. We've structured laws around this. Governments have come around this, these kinds of things. So we have an idea, I think, of what is right, and sometimes we do what is right. But we said it's more important, there, there's, a, there's an added factor um, to, to character than just doing what is right. Because if you do what is right for fear of the consequences, then all you're doing is you're just a lo- good law abider. If I'm not going to have an affair, if I'm not going to cheat on my taxes, I do it because I'm afraid I'm going to get a letter in the mail from the IRS that says you're going to be audited, I need every receipt since you were 12. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. So... I'm going to be truthful on my taxes as a result of these things. But that doesn't make me a person of character. Character goes a step further than knowing what is right and doing what is right. We said this, that character is the will to do what is right. And for those of us that are Christians, we have to add this little caveat, not caveat, an additional step up, additional things or whatever. As God defines right, 
regardless of the personal cost. We respect people who live this out, who do this. We respect people who have the will to do what is right, regardless of the personal cost. They choose, the, even though they could probably get away with it, even though they wouldn't get caught, you, you, you know them, you, you've seen them, you've worked with them, um, you, you've married one of them, and, and there's, you know that they're better than you, and you're like, this is my life that I'm living, right? So the, I'm just... This is, this is, when you see that, you want that for yourself. You respect it so much in other people. And, and we recognize, I want to have the foundation of character in order to support all of this other stuff, this achievement-based life that the culture tries to tear on me. And when, we, when we, we've seen so much, especially recently in culture, when things come to under attack, when there is a flaw or a lack of character, no matter what kind of personal empire you've built, it means nil. It means nothing for a lack of character. The will to do what is right, regardless of the personal cost. And we said this, um, that in Romans chapter 12, Paul writes a letter to a church in Rome, and he begins to describe kind of what God wants to do in terms of building character in his followers and in his people. And it, it talks about a renewal, a transformation by the renewal of our mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That renewal is the process by which we become people of character. Renewal is really a two-step process. Last week we said renewal is removing the old, taking off the old, and putting on the new. Taking off the old looks like this, making ourselves aware of the lies that we believe. When we, when, if we were to personally evaluate some of the things that we go through, we are believing lies about something, lies about our self-image, lies about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be successful, what achievement looks like for us in this world, what accomplishment means for us, what makes us good people, what makes us good humans, what makes us good husbands, wives. What are some of the lies intrinsic to some of the ways that we behave in our life? If we can become aware of those lies, we can expose the lies and remove some of the uh, the grip or the influence that they have on how we live our lives. So it's really a two-step process. And we said, man, it would be, especially around Thanksgiving, a really appropriate time to be, begin to evaluate, take some personal inventory of our life about what lie am I believing? I know this is, I know that something's messed up in me. I've never been able to put my finger on it, really. I just find myself continually falling into this temptation or this thing or this belief I find myself making excuses for my actions, and, and, and I, I know it's wrong, but I, I just, here's why, but I, can, I always have a comeback, and anytime it's pointed out by me, by a family member, especially a parent, especially at Thanksgiving, they point these things out to me, I'm quick to come up with some sort of reason for why this exists, and, and if I really was able to dive deeply into my personal psyche, I would realize I'm believing some sort of a lie. So step one in the process is identifying and I, I can't do that for you. You need to do that for yourself. But I, I, we looked at scripture to provide us some examples of what this means and what this looks like. And there's going to be, we'll talk about a few more of them there. But, and then today, to take off the old and to put on the new. Take off the old, put on the new. What does it mean, what does it mean by putting on the new? What does that look like for us. And, and uh, it, it means renewal. It means it, it plays out. And what does it mean to renew our minds in this way? And I, I want to talk briefly about that. But before I do, I want to caution you. Here's like a warning, a warning thing for 
action as a result of what we talk about today. A common fallback for those of us who are Christians um, is something that I think is kind of a shortcoming. Our tendency is to, when we are trying to renew our minds and we are trying to follow through on some of these things and putting on the new, putting on the new, putting on the new, is to, to fall into the common fallback of prayer. Uh, and prayer is great. Like I'm a pastor. I can't say that prayer is not great. Okay. That's part of the, when you go through the school, they, they make you sign the paper that says you'll tell people that prayer is awesome. It is. It's great. But problems with character are not solved by prayer, but by renewal. Here's what I mean by that. Nobody that I have ever met has said to me, I've got a problem with my own personal character. I find myself not doing the things that I want to do, and I solved it with prayer. Prayer is a great thing. I think the purpose of prayer is to get our minds in sync with the way that God sees things and to really come to grips with that. But in terms of renewal, it's not great. It's like using the wrong tool for the wrong project. Wrenches are great, when you're trying to like work with bolts and trying to twist knobs, they're terrible for drilling holes. They just don't work in that way. In the same way, prayer is great, but when it comes to renewing our mind, when it comes to replacing the lies that we believe with specific truths, it's not so great. And that really is my definition. If, if I had to like provide a, a definition for you this morning, what, what, what do you mean by renewal? What do you mean by putting things on that are new? It's identifying the specific lies that we believe about ourselves and then beginning to replace them with specific truths. Truths either for, for, for you who are, are irreligious or, or whatever, um, truths that, you, that resonate with you as truth. Um, but for those of us who are uh, Christians, again, that little caveat of as God defines it, we don't get to just pick and choose what we feel like is true. We have kind of a standard we have, we have something that we look to that, be, that, that we say, okay, throughout history, the church has defined this Bible, this scripture, scripture in general, as directed by God's spirit to be written down, to contain truths that help us figure out what humanity looks like for us, to discern truths about us, that not to flow back and forth with what's true in our culture, but more of a standardized form of truth. So replacing the lies that we believe with specific truths. Here's how it's played out for us in scripture. Listen, this is what's identified for us through um, really early on in Matthew's account of the person of Jesus. Matthew was one of um, uh, Jesus' disciples. He was a tax collector originally, which is not a good trade at that point. Jesus came along and in spite of the, the, the thoughts of his other disciples who were like, we wouldn't, don't even associate with that guy, goes to Matthew one day and says, come follow me. As a result of him being a tax collector, he's one of the more educated of the disciples. And as a result, post Jesus' resurrection and ascension and disappearance, really, he begins to say, somebody should write something down. And really, all the disciples probably pointed at Matthew and be like, well, listen, you have, you've worked with uh, like writing. You know this language better than we do. Perhaps you should take it upon yourself to write down an account of the teachings in the person of Jesus. And so he does. It comes in the, a, uh, it, it's, it, they call it the gospel according to Matthew. It's the first book in your New Testament if you have a Bible at home. And it really is um, one of the earlier gospels uh, really probably the second one written, and written to a specific audience, a Jewish audience trying to convince these Jews that Jesus is 
the Messiah. And here's what's interesting about all of the Gospels and really most of the New Testament literature, if not all of it. Uh, They were not written in the form of a diary. It's not like later on, centuries later, some explorer or archaeologist found Matthew's diary and published his diary. It's not, this did not happen in this day. This was many years post Jesus doing all of his ministry. As Matthew sits down and be like, somebody should write about this. Since I have personal experience with this, I should write down what I know and I knew about the person of Jesus. So it's not written in a today Jesus went on a mountaintop and did this. He's reflecting back on what I know about him. The times that I remember being with Jesus, here's what came up often. So when he writes his Sermon on the Mount, a lot of people think, a lot of really smart people, smarter than me, who read these books go, it probably didn't happen in the way that he describes it. It's not like one day Matthew was there going, could you repeat that last line? I missed it. Somebody's talking back here. Somebody brought their kid to this sermon, if you can believe this. And they're talking, and he's flicking my ear, and so I just need you to repeat it. It's not like that. It's like he goes, listen, I remember him doing this over a span of about three years. It seems like this topic came up a lot. I will write it down in the form of a sermon. So with that kind of a knowledge in place about how Matthew writes, there's an episode or a story about Jesus that takes place in the fourth chapter. So early on, before he did a sermon on the the Mount, before even he asked any of his disciples to follow him. This is Jesus on his own, kind of in preparation for public ministry, which is going to beg the question, how do we know anything about this? Because for sure, nobody followed Jesus in the wilderness during his temptations. That's what we're talking about today. This would have had to have been a story that Jesus told his disciples afterwards so that Matthew then decided to write this down. And there's a few things in here about why is Jesus hanging out with the devil? I mean, dude, show me your friends. I'll show you your future, bro. You, You should know these principles you should not be hanging out. Your parents would be so disappointed if they caught you anyways. So there's, there's all kinds of questions about, did this really take place or did this whatever? But listen, the, the, the point of, of, of this, the point of this is I want to look at how Jesus responds to temptations. Because what he doesn't do is say, hang on, let me pray about it. All right? Jesus definitely prays, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays right before he's arrested. There's, there's, like, there's, there's help, you know, God, take this cup from me, all of this. So prayer is definitely a part of Jesus' life. But when it comes to these, the, these specific lies that are trying to be made present in his mind, he instead replaces them with truths that he knows to be true. So, so Matthew chapter 4 uh, all of it's going to be on the screens. Uh, I'm going to summarize the second two parts because they're very, very similar, and I just didn't want to waste our time. But um, you can read it for yourself in Matthew chapter 4. But here's the first part. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So this is um, chapter 4. So this is after uh, Matthew does kind of a birth narrative of Jesus. Uh, and then John the Baptist comes on the scene. And then this is post that, but pre-Sermon on the Mount. After this, he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Right? So this is, dun, dun, dun. This is theme music. Anybody that's reading this would be like, wait, I have so many questions right now. Right? And he's like, ah, ah, hold your questions. Hold your questions. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, you know, whoa, he was hungry. Well, yeah, of course. You know, like we've heard of fasting. Like it's not a, it's not a very common practice in today's society. Today, fasting looks like um, I got offended by somebody on Facebook, so I'm going to stay off Facebook for a month. And I'm going to call it fasting, but really, I just, I'm looking at how much time I'm spending on there, 
and my spouse asked me to track how many hours I'm spending on Facebook, and I don't want to do that. Um, so I'm just going to take this media fast. That, that's happening pretty soon. January usually is a, a pretty positive time for that. But that's how, we, that's how we think of fasting. We know that fasting also included food. And originally it was food. It was sustenance. It was, I'm going to put myself in a situation where my natural, my, everything within me desires something, but I'm going to deny it for a period of time so that I can focus on something different, Right? Um, and I definitely don't recommend 40 days, right? This is like the whole talk to your doctor thing. If it lasts for more than four hours. Anyways, so that's different. Uh, so this is, the, this is for him, though. Apparently, he, was, he felt called or led by the Spirit to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. And again, he's hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Hey, you're hungry, man. 40 days. He assumes, listen, this is interesting. He doesn't question, really, like that word, if you are the son of God, it wasn't necessarily a, I don't think that you are. We both know that you are. Why don't you use your powers for your own personal good? And not only for your own personal good, for a reasonable need. It's not like, hey, if you really are the son of God, why don't you snap your fingers and make a Porsche show up in your driveway for free, right? That would be excessive. We would say, well, that's greedy or that's this and that. But we would have, we would have no real obligation towards turning stones into bread. That seems like you're just taking care of natural needs. That would not be offensive even to us. Jesus answered. Here's his answer. Well, let me pray about it for a little bit. No. What does he do in this way? It is written. He begins to quote a verse from the Torah or the book of Deuteronomy, one of the the fifth book in the Old Testament. He pulls out three different quotes over the period of time, begins to quote scripture back at this tempter, this devil, this whatever. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, here's here's the thing. Uh, people a lot smarter than me have written about the temptations of Jesus, and they've really discerned that it, the temptation was not really about hunger. It's different than that. What's the lie involved in turn these stones into bread? The lie that's being taught here is you deserve to meet your needs. You deserve it. Listen, you've gone for 40 days without food. You deserve this. And the reason that's important is because we live in a society that constantly barrages us with, man, you deserve, especially, right, Black Friday and Christmas shopping and this, you bought so many things for other people. If you will spend $50 in gift cards, we will give you $10 to Red Robin if you will buy, if you will be generous to your friends, there's something in it for you because, doggone it, you deserve it. You deserve to meet your needs. That is the... If you were to dig down, that's the lie that's being portrayed here. And his response is not, let me pray about it. His response is is very simply, listen, it's not about bread, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In in other words, I I don't need to be sustained by this. I don't deserve it. I deserve um, what I need most is to be in full dependence on God in this moment. And he goes on, temptation number two, I'll summarize it for you. He took him to uh, this, it's called the holy city, probably Jerusalem, or this is, again, this is the, um, 
this is the part where it's like, is this legend? Because it feels like snap their fingers and they, and they're all of a sudden on the tall temple top in Jerusalem. And he's like, jump off. And uh, if you do this, um, surely God will protect his one and only son by calling a legion of angels to come and save him because he will never let you die in this way. And oh, by the way, think of the public outpouring. Think of the the public nature of an event like this. Everyone would see this. If you're out to prove your own personal divinity, if you're out to prove a connection with God, if you're out to prove that you are, in fact, indeed, God manifest in this world, what better way than to do it in the public, in the city, in the center of it, in the religious center of it, where people expect crazy things to happen at the temple. The lie here is you need to prove yourself. Let me give you a chance to prove yourself. Again, this is a lie that we constantly face. Prove yourself. You need to prove yourself. Perform, perform, perform. Achievement, accomplishment. That's where your value lies. Your identity is tracked and where and how much you can produce. Go, go, go. And Jesus' response is another passage from Deuteronomy. It's, it comes with testing God. He all, don't you know it also it shows up and says, um, thou shalt, the person of, of this way should not test God in this way. Obedience takes precedence over reputation. Listen, I choose the path of obedience. I am here to kind of convince people of who I am and who God is. But my obedience takes precedence, precedence over my reputation. He responded to a specific temptation with a specific truth. It is written. It is written. Don't you know it's said? Isn't it written in this way? Haven't you read? I'm, I'm listing all of the different ways that translations have kind of interpreted this verse because depending on what translation you have. Haven't you read that thou shall not tempt the Lord thy God? Then lie number three. He took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And this is, again, a question mark of um, how do you do this? Uh, what, what does this mean? But apparently a high enough mountaintop to be able to see the expanse of the entire world. And the temptation is this. I'm going to give all of this to you. By what right? I mean, all these questions come up as a result of this story. How? Where did he go? When did this happen? And how did they get there? And what do you mean he had the authority or thinks he has the authority to be able to offer this all to him. But set that aside. Understand the, understand the underlying temptation here. All this I'll give to you if, here's the condition, if you will bow down and worship me, all I need you to do for one moment is defer to me. Recognize my authority. Recognize my opportunity, my ability to do this. And Jesus' response is once again, let me pray about it for just a half. No, he didn't say that. He says, it is written. Don't you know it's written? Haven't you read this? Away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the lie in that third one is this. You win through compromise. You win through compromise. Compromise. Every once in a while, you have to kind of accept a little bit of uh, evil with or a little bit of shortcomings with the good. You, you do what you can. You take a few shortcuts. That's, that's the, the, the thing here. If you came for this, I'm offering you a shortcut. You can avoid the cross. You can get everything that you want. All you have to do is just this one little thing, compromise in this one little way. Listen, for those of you who uh, 
you know, work in an environment where every once in a while compromises help you get what you want. And the bottom line, it's a good thing. It provides more resources for your family. It's good for the business. It's good for the image. And it, and it you know, what people don't know doesn't hurt them. And it just, it's just a little tiny thing. It, I don't want it to get public. It's not, it wouldn't be good for us if, if this became public news, but this is what you need to do to be successful in this line of work. And everybody else is doing it. You know that everybody else in our industry does this in this way. Minor shortcuts. Listen, you win through compromise is a lie. That's the underlying lie. And he responds to specific lies with specific truths. In, in essence, he says, nothing that I gain through broken fellowship with the Father is worth having. Nothing I gain through broken fellowship with the Father is worth having. Every single time Jesus responds, has some sort of a phrase, some sort of a truth. He responds with something that has been, is so readily accessible for him. It's, off, it's on the tip of his tongue. It's like a phrase that he grew up with. It is like, no, I, I, I stop myself because of this. I understand for it is written, for it is written, for it is written. For, I know this. He did this out of a, a memorization type of thing. He did this because he had immersed himself in this type of a lifestyle and this type of a thought process. So my question for us in putting on the new and in the renewal of our mind is to stop, is to disbelieve the lies that we currently believe, to identify them and stop believing in them, but then to replace them with specific truths when those things come up. So my question for myself and for all of us and you is, are we willing to take the time to immerse ourselves in truths, in things like it is written resources? Do we have that type of a pulling? Do we have that type of a, of a, of a tool bag by which we can draw from? Or is it simply, I know I shouldn't do this? Listen, when we find ourselves in the middle of temptation, it is far better to say it is written than I know I shouldn't. It is written, and, and, and again, you can, you can position, you don't have to say it is written out loud. That, nobody talks like that anymore, I get it, right? But isn't it, isn't it there, isn't this true? Isn't it true that dot, 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 and then fill in the blank? That is so much better. Listen, in the moment, I know I shouldn't do this, is pretty weak. You know, I don't know how I know. Personal experience and your personal experience, okay? I know I shouldn't eat this stinking dessert. I've already had two good days of eating, but I'm going to do it, right? I know I shouldn't is a really weak and lame response to temptations. A far better response would be, it is, there is a truth that's out there that is a guiding principle for my life. I don't need to pray about it. What I need to do is take action that I know to be true. And a big lie that we often tell ourselves is, well, memorization just isn't my thing. I, I, I don't have the ability to be able to pull these things out of thin air. And I, I try and read as much as I can. And oftentimes our approach to um, uh, scripture reading every, every January. Some of you guys get inspired to read through the Bible in a year, or I'm, uh, I, I want to read it in the way that, uh, that you talk about it, Brent. I want to I have, uh, have that, but, but more than just waiting for you to tell me what it is, I want to I own this. I want to take one of these things home, and I want to dive into it. I want to create a habit in my life for reading. And there's a devotional way to read things, right? I'm going to read three chapters a day for the next 365 days, and by the end of it, I'll have this. And that's fine, right? But a different way of reading is going through it and going, what can I use? How can I specifically invest myself into 
looking at verses or truths, truths really, not verses, okay? That's, that's, that's different. Looking at this as a source of truth, what kind of truths can I pull out to be able to identify those weaknesses and those temptations in my life? I need to have those in me so that when those things come up, I can do it. And I know, again, I'm not a memorization person. And I would say that's probably false. You memorize the things that you care about or inundate yourself with, right? Because if I started Sir Mix-a-Lot's Big Butt song, you'd probably be able to finish the first verse. And you haven't heard that song in 10 years. I'm not going to, because there's some things in there that are not, a, and a, you know, and, and not safe for me. I'm, this is being recorded. I, I, I can't, uh, I don't want to put myself out there in that way. But if I started it, you'd be like, yeah, other brothers can't deny. Anyways, you know what I mean? It's... It's in you, and you haven't heard that song for a really long time. It's just a matter of, do you care enough about it? Is it important enough for you? Is it, do I, am, I, um, am I fully aware, am I fully engaged in this? Do I, am I fully aware of the, the, uh, the lack of it, what that would do to me? Do I, do I really understand that if that's not a resource, then all I'm left with is, well, I know I shouldn't, and I know what I do when I say I know I shouldn't, I do it. And I care too much about it. Listen, I'm going to give you a couple, just some basic ones. They're going to be on the screens. Some of them that have worked for me. Some of them that were taught to me by my, by my dad. Some of them uh, that uh, I grew up with as a kid. Some of them that I, I've gained as a result of, uh, a lot of times I'll read through these, these personally, like through my own kind of reading time, and I'll put them on little post-it notes, and they sit in my office, or they sit on my bookshelves, or they, I just, I stick them somewhere. And over time, I just see them, and I see them, and I see them. I don't practice some. I don't get up, you know, and the first thing I do is I get coffee, and then I read through my verses. I don't do that, okay? I'm not freaking weird. But anyways, I, but these things are stuck in my mind so that I almost can start, I can start with the, the, the phrases, and maybe I can't even reference where specifically I could find them, but they're truths in Scripture that remain true for me. Here's the first one, ready? This was for sure one that came from my mom and my dad as a kid. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful, or this one, in this translation, helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. I can't tell you how many times I have been on the verge of clicking tweet and thought to myself, do I really need to say this? This is unwholesome talk. This is... This is bad words towards the Husky fans just because I'm angry at my team. That's what this is. Unwholesome talk. And so I discard and delete tweet. And I move on. And I'm, is it bad enough that I thought that I would say that? Sure, absolutely. Is it a step in the right direction not to click send? Yes. There have been many emails. I get halfway through the email and be like, why am I writing this? What's the purpose of this? This is not helpful. There are things, directions that I've said, critiques, criticisms, ways that I've jumped that I've realized, listen, it may be true, because that's the, that's the other standard that I go with, but what I'm saying is true. Okay, it may be true. Just because it's true does not mean it's unwholesome. Don't let any unwholesome talk. In those moments, it's not enough for me to be like, I, sh- I shouldn't tweet this thing. I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't say that. It is far more powerful for me to live with the obligation of truth that says don't let any unwholesome talk 
come out of your mouth. Paul writes to the Ephesian church that this is what's characteristic of Christians. This is what life, because it's in chapter four, this is what life in Christ looks like. Don't let any of that slip out. Dude, that, that is powerful. That's a guide. That's how I build character in my life. That's how I put on the new. I address lies that I believe. I have the right to say this, this is true, and they need to hear it. <laughs> they need to hear it because I just, I care so much about them. No, that's a lie. I don't. I care about my own ego. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of my mouth. All right, number two. Uh, Philippians chapter two, verses three. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Because it's all about me. But in humility, out of a sense of humility, consider others better than yourself. I want to do this because it's all about me. The world revolves around me. Everything points to it being around me. The fact that I have a smartphone that tells me, that makes me the center of my own personal universe, it, 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 it pushes me in a direction that makes everything about vain glory and vain conceit. And, and this is a very specific reminder that pride etches away at my life every single day. And I put myself in moments where I get a chance to do some things or say some things out of my own personal glory. But a little voice in the back of my head says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. Humility is a better way. Humility is a better way. A truth that I need to hear in moments of temptation of a lie that I believe, that I am the most important. Number three, Proverbs chapter 30, verse eight and nine. Now this, by the way, was a verse that I started last week and I said, I won't finish it because you're gonna hate what it says the second half. So if you came back, Bonus for you. You get to hear the second half today. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. That's where I stopped last week. God, and this is a prayer, um, two things I ask before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Keep, God, Father, as I go through my life and I go through my day today and my week this week, keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. See, that's the part we don't like. Because uh, we like don't give me poverty, right? Nobody wants that. But it's like this idea of don't give me riches. For us, wealth is a one-way street. It's not a cul-de-sac. <laughs> like it's like just keep me where I'm at. This is fine. Daily bread's enough. We're like, no, I want to make progress. I want to make more next year than I did this year. I want to buy a bigger house next time than I did this time. And this prayer is give me neither poverty nor riches. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you. I recognize the problem with wealth is that it gets me to the spot where eventually I could find myself saying, who's God? Why do I need God? Later on, when Jesus says it's really hard for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven, it's a mindset that he's talking about. Why is it so difficult? Because when you have money, you have security in this world. And when you have security in this world, you find yourself Maybe not verbalizing this because you'd never say this out loud, but living this out in the actual interpretation of your actions, who needs God? Who's God? Why would I need God? I've got a 401k. Who needs God? Give me neither poverty nor riches, but only what I need for my daily bread. Otherwise, I may get to the spot where I say, who needs God? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Therefore, Father... Give me neither poverty nor riches, but only what I need in the moment.
Listen, if that rang through your brain as you were out shopping on Black Friday, it would change the way that you shop, wouldn't it? Anytime we're out and we're tempted through consumerism and acquisition of things and more and whatever, if we could go, God, give me neither poverty nor riches. Fourth and finally, and this was one that my parents, again, drilled in me as a kid. Because when you're a kid, uh, this, well, I guess when you, this is true for all of life, but parents know this is true for their kids. They don't think it's as true for them. They think that you grow out of this, but I don't think that you do. This was a proverb that was written to kind of everybody. Whoever walks the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools suffers harms. This is the whole surround yourself with, you know, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. If you find yourself walking with the wicked, you will become wicked. Companion of fools suffers harm. Listen, all of these are specific truths, address specific lies that we live with and are tempted with every single day. And when you have these right with you, when you can memorize just these four things, I mean, that would be your homework if I could assign you some homework this week. I gave you a half of a verse last week and you're like, I didn't do it. Okay, well, now I'm giving you four. So I'm really setting you up for success here. But this is the renewing of the mind. This is a stop believing the lies, but replace it with what? Truths. So steps for you, quick three action steps. One, say them out loud. Say them out loud. Like these, these are good things for you. And I'm not talking like you're a crazy person, you're talking to yourself in the corner. But you, you know, this is, when I can say these out loud to myself, it just means something more to me. God, give me neither poverty nor riches. Father, help me to understand that those who walk with the wise become wise, but those who are surround themselves with fools eventually find themselves fooled. I say that stuff. I want to say that stuff out loud. Number two is personalize it. Replace the third person with I. Replace it with I. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of my mouth. It's easy to point the finger and say, you know, out of people's mouths. It's a general good principle for life. That doesn't mean anything to you. 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 This is for you. Brent, stop doing things out of self-affair, ambition, or vain conceit. In humility, I need to choose to consider others better than myself. Number three, establish an anchor, both in yourself and the lives of your family. For those of you who are parents, this is important. These are the types of words, these are the types of prayers, these are the types of, of, of truths that need to become so uh, evident in your life that your kids see them being said out loud to them or, or you're praying this thing over them. That you establish an anchor, and an anchor, the point of an anchor is it sinks down and it provides a firm foundation so that when we drift, we don't drift too far. Establish an anchor. That's the point of having these truths in place. And this, I think, is what Paul had in mind when he wrote to these Romans and said, listen, be transformed. Don't conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Take off the old, stop believing the lies, and put on the new, and start placing your trust, and start believing and thinking about that which is true for you. And in doing so, you become more and more like the mindset of Christ. And when you do that, your actions will speak louder than your words and you will become more like 
Christ, which is the goal of Christian discipleship. Father, we ask that you would help us discern the truths about us and whether that for us is looking in ourselves or finding truth in the world, I pray that for those of us who are Christians that we would dive deeply into your word. I think that um, the church throughout the centuries have recognized the truths that are in there. And though it may be difficult to read at times, um, there are things in here that shape and, and show us who we are and what it means to be human and what it means to follow after you and what it means to be in Christ. And so I pray that you would assist us, help us, guide us, as we discern these truths, help us to live with them, help, them, help us to speak them out loud uh, to ourselves, help us to personalize them and to establish by doing so and making it a habit so that it establishes an anchor so that when we drift, we never drift too far. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life, the courage to act on it in your name. Amen.